This is Weekend Magazine, a special news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers with an invitation to stay tuned as we focus on topics of interest that impact your life. We start off the program with a chat between News Radio KKOB's Bob Clark and a representative from the Albuquerque Public School System about the reopening set for April 5th. APS will be reopening their classrooms for students and teachers to return uh, for the students who choose to do so. And the person who's been in charge of making sure everything at APS is ready to go come April 5th is joining us now here on the program, the Interim Chief Operations Officer for the District, Dr. Gabriella Blakey. Gabriella, thanks for your time this morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me this morning. You bet. Hey, before we kind of get into specifically uh, the preparations and everything that's underway for the April 5th return, um, how long have you been the, uh, I, I assume if you're the interim chief operations officer, have you been in that position uh, since Scott Elder moved from COO up to interim superintendent? How long have you been in this position? That's correct. I was an associate superintendent previously, and then I moved into this uh, position when Scott uh, moved into the interim superintendent position. How long have you been at APS? It's, um, I've been in APS about 20 years. Oh, okay. Very good. So what's the COO do under normal circumstances? <laughs> I don't <Pre-COVID>. really know. <laughs> I started uh, in uh, July in this role. And so right kind of in the midst of everything, uh, most of what I've been doing in the role now is navigating the waters of um, getting kids and staff back safely to school. Um, You know, we in the chief operations office, we oversee the buses, maintenance and operation, capital outlay, um, facilities, food services. So we've been a busy group of people the past few months. Absolutely, because everything that you just mentioned obviously is impacted by April 5th. And I realize the administration and the employees at APS, like yourself, have not been just sitting around waiting until you know officially when the kids could come back, uh, because there have been a couple of false alarms along the way, false starts. The APS board has voted uh, to stick with virtual learning until this most recent announcement from the state. So now everything is a go for April 5th. But there's been a lot of preparations along the way. What's this experience been like as as you know, guidance from the CDC has changed back and forth a few times. You're not really sure when the district was going to reopen. Give us a sense of what this whole process has been like. Um, that is pretty much what has been happening since, you know, probably June when we started looking at what coming back to school would look like. And looking over the past year, I remember in July looking at, well, what if we bring the students back in September and getting ready for that? So ever since that first initial plan of bringing students back in the fall, we've met, adjusted, um, readjusted based on new guidelines from either the state, um, CDC, and we just kind of continue to adjust our plan along the way to make sure that our plan meets the guidelines and that we're keeping the kids and the students safe. And then coupled that with, you know, the vaccine rollout that came a couple months ago so our team has been you know working with the city on making sure that the community is vaccinated and that kind of took up a lot of our efforts as well to make sure that we're able to vaccinate not just our own staff but working with the community as well dr G- gabriella blakey the coo of aps is with us here on 96.3 news radio kkob gabriella the cdc did officially announce that they can do some changes in terms of social distancing and how much space 
uh, is actually needed for some students. Uh, and they did say that three feet uh, should be good enough for a lot of the students. Is that is that something that you had already been kind of uh, banking on in terms of trying to get as many students back into the classroom as possible for those who choose to come back? We had um, the public education department sent out guidelines to us um, that involved uh, basically keeping social distance to the greatest extent possible. So looking at some of our um, schools, you know, depending on how many students come back, it would be between three to six feet as far as how far apart the students are. Those guidelines also entail that that means that students have masks on. So in areas where students are eating, um, where they would have to take their masks off, then it would be back to, you know, six feet or the greatest extent possible because of the nature of not having a mask on during those activities. Do you, do, does APS have a sense yet of how many uh, students you're expecting come April 5th to return? You know, we just uh, finished a survey because we were doing parent-teacher conferences, and so it was a really good chance to get our uh, principals and our teachers in a conversation with parents as far as what their hesitation is and if they're coming um, back or not. So we'll know right around what percent we're looking at in our students that are coming back. Primarily, we also asked for if they would be using transportation um, so that we can navigate how many buses we'll need to be able to run routes for the students who will be utilizing our school buses to get to school. Where, where are you at right now in terms of the process of getting uh, as many bus drivers as possible uh, rehired? You know, we're working on it. There's lots of complications behind um, getting bus drivers because they are all in a nine-month contract. So we're asking people to come back um, on a contract for, you know, two months and then um, not being an employed again over the summer. And so that adds an additional complication sometimes. But we have, you know, we do have bus drivers and we do have buses. It's just that it's limited. And so we want to prioritize the students that we're um, transporting to school based on the need and which students will be utilizing the bus because the bus continues to be kind of a, a higher risk activity uh, due to the number of students on the bus and, you know, that you're in an enclosed space, even though we're opening the windows and such, the bus does um, have a higher risk than, say, um, going to school and being in a classroom. And that's why the district, obviously, you, you're, you're encouraging as many parents as possible to make arrangements for them, their, their children who are going back to be dropped off and picked up. If possible, yes. It is safer um, health-wise to uh, have your own transportation. But we realize that for some cases that that's not practical, and we want to make sure it doesn't hinder anybody from going to school. So that's how we'll prioritize our buses. Dr. Gabriella Blakey here with us on News Radio KKOB, the Interim Chief Operations Officer for APS. Uh, Gabriella, can you just sort of give us uh, a, a little taste of what the typical day may be like for the students and teachers who do return on April 5th? Sure. Some of it, you know, it's mixed because it's so exciting to know that, you know, we can <laughs> go back to school and be in in-person learning. So we don't want to make it into this, you know, dry experience that, a lot of students are so excited to come back to school, and we want to make sure that that excitement and that being in school still feels like a place that students want to be, and it's still an exciting place to come and learn. So um, there are some protocols, just like, you know, we've kind of adapted to as we go to the grocery store and things like that as far as entering through a certain 
door and exiting through another door. So there might be staggered entrances into the classroom. The biggest difference is going to be really that you're wearing a mask um, during the school day. So, you know, a lot of students, I think, have kind of adapted to that. When I go out to the store, I've seen, you know, children with masks on. Um, so I don't think it's going to be as uh, difficult as we think that, you know, sometimes we're just, because it's something different. But students will have masks on, adults will have masks on, lots of hand washing, lots of hand sanitizing, which isn't a bad thing to start doing, you know. So Mm -hmm. as part of our classroom routines, there will be a time before kids go out to the playground that they'll use hand sanitizer or wash hands before they come in. Lots of signs around to remind of wearing a mask, social distancing, washing hands. Um, But the actual instruction of the day and kids being in a classroom, we want them to feel comfortable in the classroom again, and we want them to be able to enjoy being in school because it's something that has, it was kind of taken uh, away very suddenly to us when we think about last spring, you know, and so we want to make sure that we're able to welcome students back in a, a safe way, but in an exciting way as well. Uh, now, a couple of things parents need to remember, too, is that the water fountains are not going to be activate it right so if, if they want right. to send a water bottle uh, with their child and plus count on them whenever possible whether permitting to be eating their lunch outdoors right that is correct and so um those are a, a couple of good things to remind parents of is that um they will be outside more eating um which is you know we're, we're lucky to live in new mexico you know most of the days we will have sunshine and it'll be nice to be outside um but it may be cold sometimes, and so we have to remember that. If it's, you know, of course, if it's raining or there's elements that are not safe to be outside, students will be inside. But when possible and appreciating our great weather here, um, students will be outside. We have water bottle filling stations throughout the schools, um, and then there is also, like, water jugs filled with water that students can fill water bottles, but you are correct that they'll need to bring some sort of refillable water bottle to school so that they can have water throughout the day, but then we have the touchless um, water filling stations that we've installed so that students can fill their water bottle. Another thing to keep in mind is that classrooms, our dampers are pulled out of converting our heat into air conditioning, and so it might be colder for some students, especially in our uh, mornings when it's a little cooler outside. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind for parents to send their students with maybe a, a little sweater or jacket for the morning when it's cold. Uh, as we sit here right now, you feel like you're ready? I, I know that we're ready. Um, really excited to see students and see all the work that the team has been doing. We've completed thousands of work orders um, that the team has done to get these schools prepared. And, you know, from my side of things, um, working with our team, they're really excited that all of this work that they've done this past couple of months, that the students will benefit and that um, we'll be able to welcome kids safely back into our school buildings. Well, Gabriella, I appreciate your time today. I really do. Uh, thank you for all of the great information. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. The Interim Chief Operations Officer for the District, Dr. Gabriella Blakey. That's News Radio KKOB's own Bob Clark from a recent interview during his morning show with Dr. Gabriella Blakey. I'm John Summers, your host for Weekend Magazine. Up next, let's have a chat with the Sierra Club Rio Grande chapter about the current oil and gas issues that seem to be on every New Mexican's mind these days. I'm Camilla Seibelman. I'm the director of the Rio Grande chapter of the Sierra Club. 
based here in New Mexico and West Texas, and I am an Albuquerquean born and raised. What is the Sierra Club's attitudes, ideas, concepts, and so on in the ever-changing oil and gas picture here in New Mexico? Well, I think we can look at the issue of oil and gas in New Mexico very locally and also very globally. You know, clearly oil and gas have has been a part of our state for decades and has provided income. However, I think for people who live locally, you know, there are real and immediate impacts. You know, families that have been exposed directly to produced uh, fracking wastewater on their homes and on their bodies, um, people who suffer from asthma that are linked to the emissions from oil and gas. And then I think globally, although locally, you know, we are seeing the real and immediate impact of global climate change, which is extreme weather events like we saw um, throughout the country just a couple of weeks ago with natural gas freezing and causing, um, you know, some really serious impact. Um, forest fires that have impacted both the state of New Mexico, but also even sort of more graphically in California. And so what we think is that, you know, overall oil and gas, whether it's in a boom cycle or a bust cycle in New Mexico, hasn't really tracked with the success of our state. Are we doing better on child poverty? Are we doing better in our educational rankings? Are we doing better in hunger and in poverty questions? And whether oil and gas is doing well or not, we always seem to still be at the bottom of the ranks. And so our sense is that we really need to figure out what to do to stabilize our economy, but also to stabilize our climate, to stabilize our water and air quality. Uh, And that while we understand the question of income for the state, we also think we're in trouble in these bus cycles as it is. So we'd better really get to the work of figuring out how we can make both our economy and our environment more sustainable for the long term. And in fact, we think there's a bigger risk to not moving away from fracking than there is from moving away from fracking and that we have to look for creative alternatives to assure that what makes New Mexico so special isn't taken away from us. Many, I'm sure, would say here in New Mexico, well, wait a minute, the oil and gas industry is bringing in millions and millions and millions of dollars (laughs) every year, in particular to help support our education system. So it's not really up to the oil and gas industry as to how that money is distributed, that lies on the politicians. How would you respond to that? Well, I think first we need to look at how oil and gas has come to hold such an outsized role in our economy. New Mexico Voices for Children points out that changes to our tax structure in 2003 and 2013 which really deeply cut taxes, not just for big corporations, but also for wealthy New Mexicans, made us much more reliant on oil and gas. And that that in and of itself is a problem. But not only that, you know, we 
aren't always able to rely on oil and gas. You know, there are legislative budgeting sessions where we're flush. There are legislative budgeting sessions where we're having to make deep cuts. So, you know, other oil and gas reliant states have done a lot of work to ensure stability in their economies. And if you look at Colorado, for example, they did deep, hard work to make sure that they bolstered their outdoor economy. And New Mexico is working working towards that by creating an Office of Outdoor Recreation and creating an Outdoor Equity Fund and assuring that New Mexico is a place to come. But when you go to Carlsbad Caverns and it smells so bad you don't want to stay, we've got a problem. Earlier, you mentioned alternatives and expanding our economic base here. What would you suggest, obviously Sierra Club uh, backing green efforts, what would you suggest to take the place, say, of that income developed by oil and gas? Yeah, you know, one interesting thing I'll start with is just in this very legislative session, we had a major piece of legislation pass. It was SB 112, a just transition for a sustainable economy, and it was sponsored by the pro tem Mimi Stewart and Representative Rubio, who actually comes from the Permian Basin and has, you know, many family members working in industry. Uh, They, well, and Representative Rubio just two sessions ago funded a major study through the Department of Workforce Solutions, interviewing over 1,800, you know, frontline workers to talk about just that. What would a transition look like and describing different alternatives um, now, with the second piece of legislation passing the Department of Workforce Solutions and the Department uh, of Economic Development, will start to act on those results. Okay, what are the alternatives? How do we move forward? New Mexico is the only state that doesn't have uh, wind, uh, wind manufacturing going on. Although the outdoor recreation may not sound like a huge industry, if you look at other states with the outdoor scenery that we have, you know, the percent of the economy coming from that source is much greater. Um, one big area is the growing need for healthcare services and getting people trained early and often there. But, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I have the big solution. I'm not going to pretend like there is one renewable job for every fossil fuel job. However, I think the economy is really in some ways speaking for itself. You know, we've seen um, a global move away from coal, for example, and through the Energy Transition Act, we said, you know, market forces are moving us away from coal. What can we do to get ahead of the game to solve the economic question? Um, so we can either wait for it to happen to us or we can try to do something proactively. Uh, and I think that's what we're going to need to do when it comes to the oil and gas industry. I mean, one of the things we are very concerned about is the ways in which the oil and fracking, especially the shale fracking industries, have had to leverage their operations um, by taking on debt and only at a certain price of oil are the is that extraction profitable for them so if the price of oil goes low again or stays low you know the risk of uh, bankruptcy the risk of an imploding industry is very high 
And in New Mexico, you might know that one of the big issues is that these companies are highly underbonded. And so what that would mean is if there is a big failure of the oil or gas industry, the money is simply there, not there to clean this stuff up. So, you know, I understand why people want to put the industry's woes on um, the environmental community. But I think what we are saying is that there are huge environmental implications, there are huge health implications, and there are huge economic implications um, that need to be taken seriously and that we need to look together at how to move forward. And I think the most successful business people have been the ones who have looked for alternatives through innovations themselves. I mean, take Kodak as an example. You know, they didn't get ahead of the digital photography game, so they got left behind. So what is the oil and gas industry going to do um, themselves to help contribute to this conversation? What are the industries that they're going to help develop? And I will make one last point, and that is one of the biggest impacts on employment when it comes to oil and gas has not been all of the economic uh, economics around the downturn of COVID. It's been automation. Boy, it used to take, you know, 16 or 17 men to run a fracking well. And now, you know, half of that is automated. And um, I think, you know, we need to, to look at that. Even if oil and gas kept running just as it always had in a, let's call it a boom economy, there are just fewer jobs associated with oil and gas now. And that's something to think about. All right. Now, we talk about making that transition from oil and gas to green energy. How in the world are we going to do that when we're not set up to build that industry yet or not to the point to where it can make up for what oil and gas has accomplished over the years? You know, most of the oil and gas extracted in New Mexico is just exported for use somewhere else. Um, so, the, you know, the electric generation industry in New Mexico is different than the oil and gas extractive industry, if that makes sense. But, you know, when it comes to generating electricity in New Mexico, I mean, the reality is that battery storage and renewable energy is among the cheapest energy out there. So you may know that PNM announced that it would be closing the remaining two stacks of the San Juan Generating Station, which is a coal-fired power plant up in the Four Corners area. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that that energy would be replaced with clean energy, but we also wanted to make sure that there would be direct benefits for the impacted community and for workers and um, that that transition would cost the least possible to ratepayers. So we helped to pass the Energy Transition Act and that has had real and immediate results where when PNM leaves the last two stacks of the San Juan generating station, ratepayers will pay will will save about seven dollars and forty five cents on their bills each month. It'll be replaced with a hundred percent renewable energy and battery storage. The most of the replacement will be uh, located up in the four corners area to the tune of a billion dollar investment in that community generating 
um, you know, property tax income that will help fund the schools and other priorities. So this is an example of a time where the economy has moved us away from coal and has provided us with low-cost renewable energy and a way of reinvesting in the community. So we didn't wait to say, okay, well, coal's going away. Let's see what happens. We said, no, we're going to do a whole bunch of things at once. We're going to fund worker transition. We're going to fund community transition projects. We're going to make sure as much of this energy is built up in the impacted community to help um, replace those lost property taxes. Um, and so that's the kind of creative work that we need to do when it comes um, to what will likely be a natural transition away from oil and gas. We mentioned earlier about that horrific storm that affected Texas a few weeks ago and shut down most everything, but we also heard that the windmills were frozen in that situation, and obviously there wouldn't have been a lot of sunlight available during that cold period. How do we expand on on clean energy with windmills and with uh, solar energy if there's no wind and there's no sun for a period of time? So I just want to clarify what happened in the storm in Texas, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, the utilities there did not weatherize, and that is a huge problem. There are windmills that work perfectly fine in the Dakotas, in Wyoming, because they did what they needed to do. Now, the Texas folks thought, well, we never get weather this cold. Well, welcome to climate change, friends. Okay, extreme weather events is exactly what climate change is all about. So uh, the Texas regulators and the Texas utilities cut corners. They thought they could rely on their warmerish weather. And because of global climate change, they cannot. Extreme weather events. Okay, so if you look at the total impact of the electric shutdown in Texas, renewables played a minimal role. Literally, they couldn't get natural gas where it needed to go, and we need to be clear and honest about that. And there will be a review, and people will come to understand the set of issues. But if we do not prepare ourselves for the impacts of climate change, we will pay the consequences, and we already have people losing their lives in extreme forest fires, people getting flooded out in hurricanes where they have to float their babies down the roads of Houston to get out of out of harm's way. And we've got to face the music. You know, our, in our world, they say, you know, don't scare people about climate change. It's not motivating to them. It doesn't make them want to do anything about it. But man, look at COVID. People are dying because we didn't pay attention to the science early and fast enough. And if we don't respond to climate change, our kids, your kids, our grandkids, your grandkids are going to pay the price. Now, if somebody told me not to take my baby boy to the hospital because his fever was fake and my little boy got taken away from me, that would be a huge problem. We have to do something about this. It is our responsibility uh, to do it while we still get to pick the creative solutions, the solutions that drive our economy, the solutions that are based on innovation. Um, you know, we, we've got to get ahead of this game. And dealing with COVID 
has been a good practice for that, you know, understanding that doing simple things like wearing masks and staying home um, can save lives. And it's the same when it comes to climate change. But the but the solutions are tougher, you know. It requires governments to cooperate. It requires every local government to do their part. It requires us identifying jobs that are good paying and that ha- can help people um, in their day-to-day lives while also keeping us safe in, in the long term. I think that th- the most important thing to recognize is that we are all New Mexicans. I was born and raised in Albuquerque. I graduated from Albuquerque High School. I'm raising my children here. And I have been the beneficiary of our extractive industries my entire life. And my hope for us is that together we can come up with solutions that work for everybody, where everybody has a well-paying job, where everybody has clean air and clean water, and can be relatively sure that their kids and grandkids are going to be able to do the same. Uh, That's my hope for us as we grapple with how to handle the impacts of oil and gas extraction, as well as the benefits that it's provided to our state. That was Camila Feibelman, director of the Sierra Club Rio Grande chapter. Weekend Magazine's a half-hour news and public affairs feature heard each weekend at various times on our cluster of Cumulus Media Group of stations based right here in Albuquerque. That's it for this week's presentation. If you head to our station website, newsradiokkob.com, you'll learn more about these subjects discussed today. That website, once again, is newsradiokkob.com. You've just heard Weekend Magazine, a special news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers, inviting you to join us again next weekend as we highlight topics that impact your life.